You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. It is our hope that this teaching helps you on your mission to make the gospel unignorable in your city. For more information, visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Good. Yeah, good. It's 9 a.m. I get it. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining with us today. If you haven't met me before, my name's Luke Hall. I serve as one of the hosts here. Uh, Providence is a community formed around a simple vision, and that is to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city by making, maturing, and mobilizing believers. To that end, we teach from the Bible each and every week because we believe it's been given to us that we might run to the truth of the word and trust in Christ. Um, We're currently in a sermon series titled Dear Jesus that is in 1 Corinthians. And give me one second while I remember what the thing is. Um, in this series, we want to consider the call to submit to the Lordship of Christ in all spheres of life and what it means for us. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some in the seat pockets in the seats in front of you. If you don't own one, consider that a gift from us today. Again, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. If you're able, oh, you're already able to stand with me for the reading of God's word. You're all ahead of me way ahead of me. Okay. Uh, Providence, hear the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome Luke back to back in the saddle hosting again. If you didn't know, they just had a baby. And so I'm glad that he's here. And uh, big congratulations to him and Hannah. So if you guys see him, you can give him congratulations and maybe give him a Z-Quil or something so that he can sleep this afternoon during a nap time for the baby. Who knows? But I'm really glad to have him back. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church If it is your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here. And uh, like Luke said, we're continuing our work through the book of 1 Corinthians. We just kicked this off, and Erica, in our second sermon, kicked off the the very first topic, the very first issue that Paul wants to address with the church at Corinth, and it surrounds unity. And he mentioned this last week. I just want to re-mention it before I pray, that this theme is going to continue throughout the first few chapters, that everything that Paul lays out in these first few chapters is really kicking back to an issue that Corinth has with division. And this morning, Paul's train of thought is that he is going to lay out for us the primary factor in the church's unity, namely the cross, but he's also going to do it in a unique way in that he is first going to tell us that the cross divides before it unites. And so before we jump into it, before we get to this Uh, passage, I'd like to pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you will bow your heads, I'll pray for us. 
Father, thank you. Thank you that we have the, the great privilege to come and to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Your word has promised that at the proper time that you would exalt us if we would but do so. Thank you that our worship in the name of Jesus is already accepted, not on the basis of our moral record, but because of what Christ has done. Thank you, my God, that you've promised to meet us and that you are here even now. And so we do ask that you would give us tender and sensitive hearts that we might hear you and that we might respond to your word. We ask, my God, that you would plant seeds that might produce 30, 60, 100-fold harvest in our lives through the power of your word and by the grace of your spirit. We ask, Lord, that we would lay down our pride that we might hear from you. For you and you alone are the good shepherd. You are the leader of your church, the head of the body. And so we submit ourselves to you now and we thank you for the grace to believe and to trust that truly you will minister to us as each of us has need. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So as Eric mentioned last week, the Corinthian church had fallen prey to certain divisions. They said things like, oh, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. And this began to be, you know, I guess the first century, you know, home group leader wars or pastor wars uh, within the Corinthian church. We know that as we go on in 1 Corinthians and even in other passages of the New Testament scripture, we'll find that each of these different leaders that are named here were known for different things. Paul being known for his missionary background, his letters that he wrote, his Jewish theological heritage that he's a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Apollos is known for being eloquent. Peter, of course, known for being the spokesman for the church. And each is kind of going, grabbing onto this cult of personality. And Paul says, cut this out. This is unhelpful. And he ended last week with this line that Eric said, I'm not going to jump into too much. So it's important that I mention it as we get into this set of passages. Paul says, God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now, if you remember, he had said this because some of them were being very proud about their leader who had baptized them. I follow Paul or I follow Cephas or I follow Paulus or I follow Jesus. And they were very proud about the guy who baptized them. And Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you, you know, Crispus and Gaius. And then he says, Eric made a joke about it last week. And he says, and maybe the household of Stephanus. You know, you can't, Paul doesn't know who he baptized. He's just maybe only a few of you. But the point that Paul's making here is it's not important who baptized you, but the name in which you were baptized in. And then he goes on to say this, that it's, it's not that I was sent to baptize, but I was sent to preach the gospel and not with eloquent wisdom, not that I might get the glory because then the cross would be emptied of its power. And then we come to this interesting line where we start this morning. I want to read verse 18 because then Paul is going to give us his justification for the primary factor of unity within the church of the living God. He says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he begins his defense of the, for the unity of the church by pointing out actually how the cross divides all of humanity along two lines. 
He says there is a division that the cross creates first before it creates unity. And that division is to those who are perishing, they see the cross and they think that's ridiculous. And to those who are being saved, they see the cross and they say, yes and amen. That is the wisdom of God. And so Paul says first that no, we shouldn't just think that the whole world is unified. You know, the, the Christian faith is not only saying that there should be unity. No, he's saying the big dividing line is not with human beings, but with the God-man Jesus Christ on the cross. What say you about him? And then he says it's there that the church finds unity. Now, what does he mean about this? Remember, he's speaking to the Roman world here, particularly to a Roman town of Corinth. And this group would have been obsessive about wise teachers. Sophists is what many of them were called in the ancient Greek world. And sophists would have been traveling teachers, these guys who would go around and they would stand up. If you remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul stands up at the Areopagus, which is kind of the marketplace of ideas, and he preaches a sermon about the Christian faith. And everyone's sitting around listening because they loved hearing the wise teachers tell their ideas. And then everyone would sit around and reasonably judge. And the Roman world was like this. You know, this is where we get the word philosophy. If you ever wondered, philosophy means philo, love of Sophia, wisdom. Love of wisdom is philosophy, and the sophists were these philosophers. They walked from town to town. Athens is only 50 miles from Corinth, okay? So every one of these Corinthian church members would have been in a culture that was steeped in a heritage from Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, reasoning and human arguments, human wisdom would have not only been worth hearing, but it would have been the way in which they saw the world, the people were a religious people, but their pagan religion was held tenuously alongside a reasonable philosophical understanding of the world, the platonic forms and ideals. And then this guy comes along, Paul the Apostle, and he presents them with this simple message. And what is his message? Well, I want you to hear it through the Roman lens, that there was an impoverished Galilean teacher who was crucified by the authorities, shamed publicly but who also was the son of God who took on human flesh, died and rose three days later and offered forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace through faith alone, not by any works that they could do or wisdom and then ascended into glory and promised to return. His apostles were not learned men. They were not Socrates. They were not Plato. They were not Aristotle. They were Peter, James, and John, fishermen and two brothers. And they were sent out into the world Paul preached a message of a Jewish savior nailed to a cross, which was an instrument of the, in the Roman world of torture. It would have been reserved for the worst kind of criminal. And to give you an idea of how the Roman people would have felt about this, listen, this is what Cicero, one of the early Roman teachers, would have said. Here's a quote from him about the cross. He says, quote, The very word cross should be removed, far removed, not only from the person of the Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears, close quote. It was anathema to think the cross. They wanted to avoid that at all costs. And then Paul comes with this message in the middle of a culture that says human beings are, are brought near to God and the good life through a virtuous life. Paul says, none of you live virtuous lives. You can only be brought near by this savior who died on a cross. And to them, this was madness. This was foolishness. And Paul's admitting that here. He says, this is what divides 
humanity first and foremost. Before the church unites, Christ came. And if you remember what Jesus said, he said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He came to basically draw a line in the sand and say, I will confound the wisdom of the wise. The cross will be this dividing line. What say you about what happened on the cross? Now, it's important to note, but how does the Christian view the cross? We believe the power of God is most prominently displayed on the cross. This is what Paul will tell us here in a moment. The recognition that nothing but spotless blood could atone for sin was something that God had told us since the very beginning He had told us this for thousands of years through all of the stories of the Old Testament. It could only be spotless blood. He had given us these foreshadowings like only spotless blood of an only son, like when he told Abraham to go up on the mountain and slay his son. He had given us these breadcrumbs saying this is the only way. And then, of course, Jesus shows up. It causes us, the cross to the Christian, to stand in awe. We sing about the cross. We have good Friday services. Kind of wild if you think about it. What wonder the old rugged cross brings to Christians. How about this? We take communion, which Jesus commanded us to take, which reminds us of the cross. If Easter reminds us of the resurrection, communion reminds us of Good Friday, and we do it every week. Why? Because something happened at the cross. We preach the cross because of the transaction that was made there. We sang about it earlier. Something was finished and completed that could never be undone, could never be changed. Of course, the powers of darkness though this, but I want to point out it's so central to the Christian ethos, the cross of Christ, that even in Revelation, after Christ in his glorified body is shown, you see him both as a lamb, not just a lion, and you see him still with scars in his hands in a glorified body. Why is this? Because the cross is central. The crucified king is magnified in power. Now, I want to maybe give a couple of examples. I cut some of these quotes down because they were a little bit long, but is Paul right about this? Is Paul right that, you know, the world sees it as foolishness, at least half the world sees it as foolishness? Well, That's what was true in that day. But I want to read just a handful of quotes from the 20th century and a couple, maybe one from the 21st century uh, of, you know, kind of the the intelligentsia, okay, of the 20th and 21st century. These are just three quotes. I I have a Nietzsche quote here, but it's very long. I shortened it down for the sake of time because you guys know I'm a problem in that area. This is what Nietzsche says. He says, Christianity as antiquity... When we hear the ancient bells growling on a Sunday morning, we ask ourselves, is it really possible this for a Jew crucified 2,000 years ago who said he was God's son? The proof of such a claim is lacking. Certainly the Christian religion is an antiquity projected into our times from remote prehistory. And then he goes on to end, can one really believe such things? In other words, this is nuts. Sam Harris, who is one of the more the new atheists is what they call themselves. He says this, quote, Christianity amounts to the claim that we must love and be loved by a God who approves of the scapegoating torture and murder of one man, his son incidentally, in compensation for the misbehavior and thought crimes of all others, close quote. And then, of course, I just grabbed this one because the late Christopher Hitchens always summed it up in like five words. And his belief, he says, Jesus is Santa Claus for adults. Now, I could spend time, which I don't have, pointing out that 
For all the postulation of these men that life is merely an uncanny accident of coincidental reactions of matter, they seem to have a lot of moral outrage at a God that they don't believe exists. You ever notice that? Like, I'm not angry at the Loch Ness Monster because it's just a fun story. But I'm not, I don't have to have him dead, you know. I'm not like, I hate, he doesn't exist and I hate him, right? And then, of course, a simple question would suffice. You know, what, by what standard is the cross so foolish and outrageous? What standard do you have to tell me that anything is outrageous? <laughs> what, what do you mean by reprehensible, Sam Harris? Nietzsche, why is it so abhorrent? What meaning can you give that word if you don't have a standard by which to define it? Now, of course, that's not the point. It's not Paul's point. My point in reading you those is to say, nothing's changed about the initial dividing line of humanity. Foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God, the wisdom of God to those who believe. You see, the cross divides humanity along that line, along the line of Christ. And this is why the church preaches the gospel, because you and I could divide ourselves in a million different ways in this room. And we could even divide ourselves from humanity in a million different ways in this room. And yet, God does not call us to be the stumbling block for the world. He says, I will be the stumbling block for the world. You just preach me, and people will stumble, and people will be offended. He's the rock of offense. But we stand aside from that and just say, we we preach the cross. Now, I'm going to explain why that totally makes sense as we move on. But quickly, if we're paying attention, Paul's telling us that when the church gets divided, we should do what? Look to the cross. Something's gone wrong about how we're viewing the cross if we see division. Because, of course, humanity does divide at the cross. Ah, but the church unites at the cross. So if we have found ourselves in disunity, whether at the local level or the church at large, then we should look back to the cross and say, have we abandoned first principles? Have we abandoned something at the cross? Also, I'd like to say so much battle of the Christian life is to not be swayed away from a theology of the cross. You should not be driven away from this. Every earthly world, worldly force will always seek to draw you onto different ground, to argue on some other pretense, but that's because the powers of darkness cannot bear the cross. And so they have to move away from the cross because it's at the cross that everything was laid bare in all of humanity. The question's about Christ. What say you about him? Well, he was a good man. No, good man do not say they are the son of God and then die and say they rose again and command obedience. He's not just a good man. Well, he's just a prophet. We believe he's a prophet. That is not possible either because if he's not the son of God worthy of your obedience, then he's a false prophet. What say you about the cross? What happened 2,000 years ago? See, we can go across, we can go in a million different directions and often most want us to, but we should come back to the cross and say, every historian knows that Jesus was a real man who really lived and really died. And many would say, well, that's not true. There's many who disagree with that. Yeah, but they don't have the actual record and fact, the evidence to back them up that Jesus didn't actually exist. You know, there's more evidence for Jesus' life and death on the cross than there is for some uh, characters in history that you and I just take as for granted. Many, actually, many certain wars that are taught in schools every single day, some to our children, that the evidence of Jesus' birth, death, life is more factually based in historical documents than almost any life in human history. And so the cross is the dividing line. What say you about what really happened 2,000 years ago? 
And at least Nietzsche and these others are intellectually honest. It's either foolishness or it's God. And what say you about him? Paul, of course, refuses to take the bait. He tells us we should not be sidelined from our mission Whenever others would say, well, who baptized you or who baptized you? Who are you baptized into? You know what Paul would say? I'm glad I don't baptize anyone. Christ didn't send me to baptize. I came to preach the gospel. Who's supposed to baptize? Paul is supposed to be deacons or elders. Is it supposed to be home group leaders or fathers? Or it's supposed to, should you, did you baptize by immersion or sprinkling? Like, should we get a spray bottle or should we get a horse trough? Which one is it? What, what should we do communion? You know, should we do it this way or this way? Should we do it? And you know what Paul says? I'm not going to take the bait. Christ sent me to preach the gospel. Paul would tell us what's infinitely more important is what say you about Christ. Whose name were you baptized into? Now, he then moves on and he's about to give you his case. Let's start in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the the discerning I will thwart. Paul quotes here a passage from Isaiah In Isaiah, God was promising that the children of Israel would fall into judgment. And they were creating techniques where they were hoping they could get some horses from Egypt, they could get some riches from other nations. And they believed they could fortify Israel enough to keep off and stave off the invasion. And God says, you think in your wisdom that you can hold back what I've got coming for you, and I will not allow it. Number one, leaning on your own understanding and wisdom will always lead to disunity. Proverbs 3, verse 5 tells us that you should trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. If the church finds itself lacking unity, we ought to check and see, have we trusted in worldly wisdom and discernment rather than in the wisdom of God manifested at the cross? Have you begun to trust your own discernment more than you trust the word? Have you begun to trust your own wisdom, your own knowledge, your own opinions? If you do, you're going to quickly find yourself at odds with those around you whom you love. Let me say it like this. No one comes to kneel at the cross for redemption and walks away with a strut. Does this make sense? I'll give you another example. Jacob wrestles with God and lives and walks away with a what? A limp. That's how the Christian comes to the cross. We come to the cross humbly we lay down all of our pride, but we don't pick it back up again and put it on like clothes and walk away with it. No, he stays there. The cross causes us to consider our ways, humble our thoughts, temper our judgments. And Paul begins in verse 20 by calling out some of the pompous nature of the Corinthian leaders. Listen to verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He's not saying this because he wants to see them and honor them, by the way. This is rhetorical. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Number two, embracing wisdom that contradicts Scripture leads to disunity. Embracing wisdom that contradicts Scripture leads to disunity. Now, this one feels pretty obvious on the surface. If you're a Christian in the room, you're probably like, yeah. But you'd be surprised if you thought about it how often you and I struggle with this. How often do we find ourselves making ourselves the exception to the rule of Scripture? You guys ever had been here yourself? Like something happens in your life and you know that there's, there's basically a one-to-one correlation between what the Lord said about how we ought to parent or treat our wives or treat our husbands. But we internally, we are great lawyers. We start getting into the fine print of our own justification. Well, they don't really have to apply this because, you know, it's a different circumstance, different situation. And we're talking a million miles an hour to ourselves. 
We're like ready in case one of our friends asks us, like, man, why'd you treat your wife like that? Like, well, let me tell you. We roll out our reasons. And because we're the exception, not the rule. We may think that, you know, the Bible's true in most cases, but it's kind of nuanced. And the fact is, it it rarely is. (laughs) It rarely is. One of the most unique and tragic realities today also is how many, specifically young people, but I would say all people, are finding mentors and life coaches through social media experts online. It's weird. Like, particularly about, you know, marriage advice or parenting advice. And I'm not saying there's no, no good at all that may come from that. I'm saying it's probably like, like you might get good water um, from a creek, <laughs> maybe. It, like you might be able to drink it and not throw up, you know what I mean? But that doesn't mean that you go there as your primary source, is my point. It's like, you don't, just because you're like, yeah, but there was like, I, I heard this really good thing. It's like, yeah, but if someone went to a grocery store and constantly got food poisoning, you wouldn't be like, yeah, but I went there once and it was fine. You'd probably be like, maybe we shouldn't. I don't know. Maybe this is just me. I feel like this is our Corinthian moment as a culture, at least especially a culture in the church. Like you're taking life advice from someone online and many times someone who entirely rejects the fundamental Christian faith that you hold. I want you to think about that. Someone who rejects as out of hand what you hold as central and they are the people who are telling you to, how to raise the kids. Friends, we ought to be cautious with this. Like I don't care how many degrees this person has. All right, I... I'm, I'm, I'm taking everything with a grain of salt. Let's say that. I'm taking everything with a grain of salt. If we find ourselves taking cues from those who may reject the cross of Christ, we should not be surprised if there's disunity in the body to follow. Why? Because who's the head of the church? Let me give you an example of this. If you find yourself at, within a friendship, okay, and you're in a covenant with your wife, and let's say you, you have two other friends, and one of those friends just completely loathes your spouse, how long can that relationship work? Because you're in covenant with your spouse, right? So they come to the dinner table. And they're like, I, just, I can't stand you, though. I, I mean, I can't stand your wife, but I really love you. Husbands, would you say, this friendship's going to last for a long time. You know, like, this is good. How long before your wife is like, we're not going to dinner with them anymore? You and I are betrothed to the Lord Jesus. We're in covenant with him. So how, how is this going to work out? How long is this going to work out? They were taking life advice, life coaching, mentoring from people who absolutely loathe the Lord who bought us. Another little illustration might be something like this. When you're having heart surgery, do you care if the heart surgeon um, is handsome or eloquent, or do you care if the heart surgeon has 10,000 successful heart surgeries under his belt? There are some, you know, TikTok videos that people are pretty eloquent, and, you know, they've clipped the video to be really, listen to me, when you're having heart surgery, <laughs> do you care if this is a male model? or a female model that's working on your heart, or if they show you their resume and they're like, you know, no one's ever died on the table when I, they were under my scalpel. Sold. I don't care if he has hair, no hair, pretty hair, one eye, three eyes. That's a good resume for me, okay? The cross is folly to the wisdom of this world, and we must not forget it, and yet it pleases God to save us through that folly. Verse 21, Paul goes on. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I love Paul says here, you know, all of human wisdom for 4,000 years up until Christ did not lead people back to God. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they had no ability to lead people back into a relationship with God. 
This is our problem in the secular age. We have bought into the lie that somehow what humanity needs more of is just education. If we could just be more educated, the world would not be as sinful. And yet this is proven gravely foolish. We don't need education. We need a savior. We don't need more information. We need salvation. All of human reason and intellect, if not saved by grace through faith in Jesus, will always result in just a more clever version of self-salvation techniques that lead to human misery. We'll always cleverly devise ways to mask our sin and hide from God. C.S. Lewis said, education without values, as useful as it is, seems rather to make a man a more clever devil. And I would just make one change to that. Education without Christ, as useful as it may seem, actually just makes you a more clever devil. You're just more clever at self-salvation techniques, which actually leads to misery. He goes on in verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the Jews were offended by the gospel and by the cross for entirely different reasons than the Greeks. They saw the cross not as foolishness, but as a sign of weakness. They expected a warrior king Messiah endowed from on high with God's power to perform signs. They saw a Moses figure standing in the face of the Roman emperor, bringing plagues down on Rome. You ever wondered why James and John said, should we call down fire from heaven? Because they have, they have read their Bibles. <laughs> they were thinking, we know who you are, Jesus. Let's smoke these guys. We can end this quickly. They had forgotten that Moses was a stuttering man. They forgot that Moses was not the, the man that people expected. In fact, Moses himself was so insecure about being not a great leader, that he begged God that Aaron would speak for him. They sought powerful displays so the cross was offensive to them. Their Messiah would never be hanged on a cursed tree like a criminal. That's not how it works. And yet Paul told them this is exactly what happened. Your eyes are blinded. You're veiled. So if the, G, if, the, if the Greeks rejected the cross of Christ as foolish, the Jews, they rejected it as an offense. But then Paul says this, just as the cross divides humanity, it unites both Jews and Greeks together into one church. The cross unites the people of God. They look to the cross and they don't say foolishness. They don't say offense. They say the power of God, the wisdom of God. And so I want you to make this leap with me. If Paul's right here, then Paul is telling us Disunity or unity is always downstream of worship. Disunity or unity is always downstream of who we worship. And that leads me to my last few points. How does the cross unify? Number one, the cross unifies because it excludes boasting. Now I'm going to be very brief on this one because next week's sermon is this. But the cross unifies the church because it excludes boasting. It pleased God that the cross would be seen as ridiculous to the serpent and to all of his crafty descendants. And that apparent, def that apparent defeat on the cross was actually what saved us. You know, the serpent looked at the cross and thought, this is ridiculous. How in the world could this ever be? Let's just, let's just end the air altogether. 
And this is because all of human history, all of the world from the serpent's own mouth is about human boasting and grandiose shows of power and wisdom and might. And Jesus shows up as meek. And he, when he, when he uh, extends his powerful hand, how does he do it? He, he feeds people. He's not like a Marvel character. He's totally different than that. And then he goes to the cross and dies. And all of the powers of darkness think this is the easiest we've ever, this is the big, easiest mop-up job we're ever going to do. And it's in that moment that everything was lost to them forever. Human pride and the love of wisdom and eloquence leads to division because it's grounded in the desire of self-exaltation. And that is the serpent's desire. When we fall in love with our ideas, we are divided. When we fall in love with the orators who make us puffed up and pompous, we become divided. When we fall in love with our own theological knowledge and how much wiser we are than everyone else, we become divided. When we fall in love with ourself, even in light of our intellectual heroes, so sometimes you fall in love with yourself, but you don't recognize it because you, you know, you're kind of a hero worshiper. I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, but it's a way of glorifying yourself because you're, what you're saying is, I am a, the kind of person that follows this guy. Like, I'm the kind of person that listens to Jordan Peterson and gets it, <laughs> you know? And, and that's why he, he's a hero. Or, and I'm the kind of person that, you know, isn't, I, I'm, I'm the kind of person that isn't charismatic because I'm a more of an intellectual type. And you know, the charismatics, they're just silly. You know, I'm, I'm not a dum-dum like that. I don't need emotionalism like that. And ultimately what you don't recognize is it's not the person that you follow that you're glorifying only. It's really personal self. Number two. The cross unifies us because it, this is going to be, uh, it's going to make you consider, reestablishes hierarchy. See, some people think the cross abolished hierarchy. Said, so, see, there's neither Jew nor Greek, Scythian or slave, male or female, Christ at all in all. Okay. And in one sense, I understand where you're, it's not, it's a, it's a flattening in that sense. But hear me out. The cross reestablished a heavenly hierarchy. Anyone who has, who has ever played team sports knows how important it is. Fourth quarter, you know, down six headed down the field, how important is it to have a coach to call plays that knows what plays to call and a quarterback to hear those plays, communicate those plays, get people in the right place to snap the ball and execute? Everybody knows if there is a hierarchy and how well the structure of that team is in those moments. Like they can all take team pictures, like, man, that looks like a great team. You know how you know if it's a great team? In that moment. Everyone understands intuitively how important hierarchy is in those moments. The cross takes all of humanity and reestablishes a hierarchy except that it kind of flips it on its head. Who's the man in charge? The one on the cross. <laughs> Could you imagine this? And then he comes back from the dead, by the way. Who's the guy in charge? Oh, the guy you killed? Him. Who calls the shots? The crucified one. And you might be thinking, how can this be? And then, you know, a line that I heard recently that just kind of, kind of blows my mind, and you could take this, especially husbands, take this and, and just chew on it for the rest of the day. Uh, how could this be? Leadership always flows to those who take responsibility, even if it's not their fault. This is what Christ does on the cross. He takes all of humanity. Think, think of this. Humanity is completely sinful. They've been mired in this sin forever. God's been working with his people. And you've got to think that Satan's looking out at the Roman Empire thinking, I am winning this. I am winning this. Christ comes in and takes all of humanity's sin on himself, dies and is crucified, and then says, I'm going to remake them all. Recreation. Satan and all of his demons didn't see it coming. 
Now, in the church, what does this mean when we say Jesus calls the shots? Well, friends, this is why we say um, we're led by the scriptures. We get up here every morning and say, hey, we open the Bible because we think that the Bible's central. What do we mean by that? It's not the eloquent man that makes decisions. It's not the wisest orator. It's not the guy who's had seminary. It's the word of God that leads us. It's not the strong man or the powerful man. The word of God leads and we trust in it. And in so doing, we are not being led by human whim or our own decision, our own feelings, you know, but we're led by the crucified one. What's some examples? You know, why is it that we do elders at the church? Well, because God said to do it in the word. That's why. You know, why do we take the Lord's Supper? Well, because you know, the Lord told us to do that. Why do we sing? You know, why do we... These, why, why, why? The answer must be because, because the Lord desires it. You see, it, is, it isn't about my desires. Number three, the cross unifies because it reminds us of our need. The cross unifies because it reminds us of our need. We must be in constant reminder that we ought to humble ourselves to one another, repent and believe the gospel. You and I, hear me, we need forgiveness. So what do we need? We need to repent, show humility one to one another. We need to own our own faults. We must reject high-handed pride. That kills. We must reject the idea that we don't need the cross. Nothing can sap your spiritual strength like obstinance. The primary thing that can, can, that can preclude you from the power and the wisdom of God in the cross is to pretend that you don't need it. Isn't that, isn't that silly? But it's true. The one thing that can preclude you is to pretend that you don't need what happened on the cross for yourself. There's nothing more unifying than sitting at the foot of the cross together and repenting of sin. It brings you together as a church. Ah, there's room here at the cross. And so I close with this. I go back to Paul's words last week. I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. What was, what was Paul's first rhetorical question? Was Paul crucified for you? If you're divided from your brother or your sister on the basis of your spiritual leader, no matter how faithful they may be to the Lord, you have gone awry at a worship level. That's what Paul was saying. And can we not apply this to almost every division that exists within the body of the church? You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be too hard. This is, just, this is generally what happens in the church. But things like this, you know, I really don't like the worship songs we sang this Sunday. And you say, well, I know that's not ideal. And it kind of stinks, you know, you didn't have the songs. But we should look to one another though and say gently, it's good news though that we weren't singing to you. Anybody else? It's crazy, you know, and hear me, I could find myself doing this. I'm like, you know, why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? He, he, you know, is he worthy again? How many times are we going to sing this? And, you know, just that gentle spirit of God saying, you know, I'm not singing to you. Remember when Samuel got really upset when they were asking for a king and they didn't want his sons? And they're like, here are these, they just reject me. They don't want my sons. Everything that I've done, and look, they reject me. And, and God's word to Samuel was, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Why are you making it about you? No relational squabbles should exist within the church. Why? Well, only Christ was crucified for you. Why should you expect that each and every one of the people sitting next to you are somehow going to perfectly live and never offend you? 
Of course they will. And you know what? You've probably offended them this morning. <laughs> what we should ask is what Paul asked the Hebrew church, which, you know, we don't get away with now because we live in a different time when everyone's offended by everything. But, you know, when Paul asked the Hebrew church whenever they were really uh, complaining about things, he said, you know, have you shed your blood yet? He says, have you shed your blood for this whole Christian thing yet? He says, don't worry, you're doing okay. That's pretty intense, but it may be something that we ought to consider. You know, when you were disagreeing with your brother about the finer points of theology, did you need stitches after? Did you, you know, did, did you need to go to the doctor after that friend didn't say hi to you in church? This is what we ought to think about sometimes. How about this one? Opinions and preferences should not divide the church. You know why? And I'll just, I'll pick on myself so that way it doesn't feel like it's always one way. There are things about providence over years where I think, how is it that a, a church that I planted, there are things I don't like about? You know what I'm saying? It's like when you, it's like, now this is, this may sound silly to you, but you're like, everyone naturally would think like, okay, this is a, a spitting image of what the person who planted it wanted it to be. And that's just not the case. Of course not. And then you look at it and think, well, why, why is that? And you know what the Lord reminds me of is Jesus didn't die to build a church in my image or yours. Did you know that? He's not conforming your neighbor to your image. He's not. He's not conforming him to my image. Jesus died for his church and he's leading it. So we should ask ourselves, did, did Christ die on the cross to secure your favorite ministry program? You know, how about you, Court? Did he, did he die on the cross so that the providence would look the way that you wanted it to look, so that the website would be how you wanted it to look? So every sermon series was the way that you wanted it to go? Was the death of the Son of God for all of my own personal preferences and comforts? Well, of course not, because you know what we do when we look at the cross? We see not a comfortable Savior, a dying Savior. And then he says, I bid you to come and follow me. One of the most important things that the cross reminds me as a pastor is that as much as it feels heavy at times, the church is not about me. I am caught up in something so much bigger than me. I am honored to be a part of it, but I am only one part. Christ's church is the hope of the world. We have been commissioned to carry the message of the cross to the nations. It's that message that unites people back to the God who made them. How important is the unity of the body then? Much more important than my personal preferences. And so I leave you with this. This morning, I pray you come to the table of the Lord and lay down all of the petty things today. Lay down the things that hold you. Lay down the bitterness and strife. Lay down the things that may cause you anxiety. Lay down the marital squabbles that may be besetting you. Lay down the offenses that you may carry this morning. Lay down the opinions and preferences that may have you feeling disgruntled or bitter. Lay down the anger and malice that might cause you to grind your teeth at night. Lay down the loyalties to false idols that have made you blind and instead peer up at the Savior who was crucified for you. Here's what I can promise. There is peace at the cross for you this morning. There's grace at the cross for you this morning. There is contentment at the cross for you this morning. And finally, for us as a church, there's unity for us as a church there at the cross this morning if we will but kneel at his feet. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that 
even 2,000 years later, the message of the cross, it cuts us in one way and it binds us in another. It wounds us in the ways that we need wounded, but it heals us as well. Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would help us to lay down at the feet of your cross anything that would cause us to be disunified, one with another, and most of all, my God, with you. Help us, my God, to come before the cross and find that peace, contentment, joy, and grace that you offer us. As we take of your table, bless us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. If you would like to know more information about who we are and how you can partner with us to make the gospel unignorable in our city, please visit us at www.providencetx.org.